Knack knack. Who's there? Uh, yeah, I'd rather not share that with you. Hey, no sweat. Come on in. Make yourself at home and take anything you want. Wait, you wouldn't let a stranger in your house. Why would you let anonymous traffic scrape your website? Introducing IP Info's Privacy Detection API, a fast and simple way to detect malicious traffic. Activate your free trial today at ipinfo.io. And don't forget to use the promo code CODESTORY at checkout. Core product, and, and the core, I would say, secret sauce of Quilt is that we're a unified API for multiple different types of APIs and data providers. And, and we're sort of normalizing that into a, a single standard data model. So one of the assumptions that we made was, okay, well, we're solving the backend problem, and that's the really hard engineering problem. The front end, you know, that's, that's easier. You know, we can deal with it later, or our customers can figure that out. One of the learnings from uh, our last year in beta they're coming to us to solve integration issues, right? They want to make it easier to access this data. They want to accomplish a particular job. My name is Ruben Ismalian, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Quilt. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead. A team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Ruben Ismalia is stitching together consumer fintech, enabling you to launch innovative technology. All this and more on Code Story. Ruben Ismalian grew up in Armenia originally, then moved to Russia when he was 12. When he was 14, he and his family came to the U.S., and eventually he attended Brown in Rhode Island. He's an avid barbecuer, which fits perfectly now that he's living in Texas with his young family. He did let me know that he was even into this style of cooking when he was living in Brooklyn, against the wishes of his landlord at the time. In a previous role, Ruben was made aware that although financial institutions and brokers had access to useful data, normal consumers did not. Starting out with a budgeting app, he and his team ended up pivoting to creating the tooling and infrastructure needed to interact with financial data sets. And this abstraction started to gain traction. This is the creation story of Quilt. The idea behind Quilt is to empower all sorts of users, technical and non-technical, to really quickly connect customer accounts, stitch different financial APIs together, and ultimately kind of release intelligent workflows and user experiences to market. So the, the genesis of the company really started out with kind of my own personal sort of struggles with personal finance. I was actually living in New York at the time, worked kind of for a financial data company, more like Wall Street type of stuff, and was really kind of flabbergasted by the fact that we had this amazing technology for, you know, investment banks and hedge funds and all these type of kind of financial companies to interact with data and to make good data-driven financial decisions. But... You know, for, for most of us, kind of regular people, you know, we're, we're sort of stuck with mostly kind of antiquated technology and, you know, a couple of like, you know, budgeting apps here and there that are really laborious, generally take a lot of time to set up. So around the time I moved from New York to Texas, I had a bit of a quarter life crisis and realized that I want to be building stuff. I don't want to be, I was in a sales type function before. So I actually, you know, got back into programming did a lot of programming in high school, but, but hadn't done it since, since, since high school. 
and started kind of hacking away at a couple of ideas that I had in mind. Started playing with some of these newer APIs, kind of really starting to really open up kind of new new plumbing and new ways of, of programmatically getting data out of our banks. And so was working on, on a couple of these budgeting ideas, you know, realized that I needed to become like a really good engineer to build something good. So at the time, was fortunate enough kind of to have an opportunity to, to, to invest in that a little bit. So I started kind of uh, working professionally as an engineer, mostly self-taught. I did one of those boot camps that, that helped me get started a little bit. And eventually, you know, we, we, we put together this budgeting app that we you know, started sort of selling to community banks and credit unions to add into their offering. One thing led to another. We ended up eventually kind of pivoting from that from having an actual app ourselves to providing a lot of the tooling and the data infrastructure for folks to, to be able to interact with these type of data sets without necessarily kind of going through the struggles that I went through, you know, hooking everything up and really learning the ins and outs of these systems. So, so the idea really ha- has evolved into, into building this kind of new abstraction layer for uh, this increasingly kind of fragmented and sophisticated, you know, landscape of, of data infrastructure and APIs that are available in the consumer financial services space. Okay, so let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you built, that first version. How long did it take to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? To to the point where it was a functional MVP, you know, probably took me at least a year, in part because I was sort of learning as I go. So it was built in Ruby on Rails, standard relational database, Postgres, Ruby on Rails, hosted it on Heroku. Really, I tried to maximize using the kind of tools that were just accessible to somebody like me because I, you know, I knew what I knew and I knew what I didn't know. And so, you know, using things like Heroku, for example, was a no-brainer for me because, you know, I didn't know what a load balancer was and I wanted somebody else to figure that out for me, right? I'm a huge fan of Rails. We still use Rails extensively in our application. So, so it was really mostly reaching for the kind of tools that, you know, I could use and that would make me productive as an engineer. And then MVP, essentially, what it would do is it would allow you to sign up, connect your bank accounts using the Plot API. And then we would essentially analyze that data and we would put together this holistic financial picture of you. So from the basics, like what are your accounts and transactions to a lot of kind of derived data sets, like, you know, what are your recurring expenses? What is your income? You know, when do you think you'll run out of money or when you, how much will you be able to save sort of at this type of a spending clip? And, and so the, the next phase for us was starting to build different sort of scenario modeling tools. We had a couple of sort of developments that led us to kind of abandon course a little bit and, and, and start focusing on actual infrastructure that we had built. We were better at building the infrastructure than, than building, you know, really dynamic user experiences. Frankly, I was just seeing so many entrepreneurs and so many companies really wanting to leverage this new tooling that was available, but kind of feeling locked out because of, you know, often just how much stuff you need to build in-house. And, and I felt that a lot of this tooling should be, you know, more available off the shelf, should be a little bit more repeatable. You know, everybody shouldn't have to sort of translate the way a particular API models out the finances of the person into kind of their own data model when the data model ultimately, you know, should be a little bit more canonical, right? Like person has 
a certain set of accounts, certain certain of these accounts are, you know, cash, certain of these accounts are kind of liabilities, you know, being able to figure out recurring expenses, even if, if something, you know, the Netflix bill or if something, somebody's rent. Um, these are really important things to understand about a person if you're going to be building any kind of financial experiences, particularly those oriented around kind of driving better financial outcomes and, and financial wellness for folks. So we really decided to focus kind of on that side of things. And, and that's when we essentially, you know, reincorporated a, a quilt. The old company was called something else. It's called Budget and, and decided to go down in this in this infrastructure direction. OK, so so from that point, then you have your MVP you've reincorporated as quilt. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think to put that in a box a little bit, what I'm looking for is how do you go about building your roadmap and how do you decide Okay, this is the next most important thing to build for Quilt. The, the easy answer, right, is is you, you put this in front of customers and, and folks that can kind of tell you what they want. I think that's sort of the age-old way of, of building products. At the same time, I think most of the experiences we have with financial tools typically come from kind of really large and sophisticated institutions, right? Like, like you know, most people bank with a major bank, like a Chase or Bank of America. And so we'll look at their app and we say, okay, well, this app has a bunch of features that we don't need and, you know, I could always do it better. You know, I just think that's something that I see a lot with folks in this space is there's a lot of creativity. Everybody has an opinion on money. Everybody has an opinion on sort of how to better present and show information to folks. But the reality that I think most folks run into as they start building in this space is that, hey, there's a lot of things I didn't think about, right? There's a lot of these additional you know, data sets. There's a lot of this complexity, you know, not to mention sort of the, the bar for, for security being much higher in this space than in some other spaces, perhaps. Part of this is combining the kind of stuff that our early customers would tell us with, frankly, some intuition and some kind of creativity that we had myself and, you know, my co-founder. And then, you know, as we brought on you know, more folks onto our team, we really prioritized kind of hiring people that, you know, had a certain opinion or maybe maybe not the most positive experiences with the financial system, right? Because ultimately, I think you need to have that kind of empathy for the end users, but then also have empathy for the builders, right? Who are going to be, you know, either sort of software engineers who are just trying to get their job done, or it's going to be a startup founder, you know, who left a some kind of a nice secure job to, to to build something something brand new and really you know needs to hopefully have somebody that can kind of help them avoid a lot of the common mistakes when you're building the financial data when you're building the type of experiences you know to put in front of in front of end users let's switch to team then so how did you go about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you Currently, we're a team of seven, seven full-time, rather. And the main focus in the early days, right, is convincing somebody to come kind of like join us on this crazy journey, you know, before we, you know, we have money, before there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty, right, at the really early stages of a startup. So I think the, the first kind of domino to fall really was bringing on my co-founder. So Mark, he, him and I are old-time friends. He actually got me into barbecuing in Brooklyn many, many years ago. So we're all time colleagues and we had that personal relationship. He was kind of at a bit of a career crossroads and, and you know, we started chatting. He's the best salesperson I know. I really wanted somebody to help me with that side of things. And so he came on board and, you know, that was like incredibly validating, right? You know, I'm, I'm working on this thing and, 
you know, you all feel like a crazy person in the early days of any kind of a startup, particularly, you know, pre-funding. And, and getting him to join was a really big deal for me, frankly, psychologically. And, and I think it made it feel like a real company for the first time. And then, you know, in 2020, when we really sort of transitioned into, into Quilt, you know, we were fortunate enough to raise a small pre-seed round of capital. And that kind of allowed us to, you know, go out and hire, you know, additional folks. The first priority for me was, of course, you know, as, as the product of this should be, bringing on engineers. But, but not just any engineer, right? I, I really wanted somebody that would be, you know, would start off as a kind of thought leader, peer to me, and eventually eclipse me in many ways, right? You know, I don't have the most traditional background for a technical founder. And I think that can be an advantage in many ways, but it can also be a disadvantage in certain contexts. So getting somebody who, who really both kind of had a passion for the type of problems that we're solving, but also had experience in, in this domain was really important. So we hired our lead engineer, came to us from Chime, which is the big kind of neobank, probably the biggest neobank and the most successful banking startup. And so, you know, he was a really transformative hire for us in that, A, he went in and started deleting most of my code, which is always really, really fun. <laughs> deleting it and replacing it with better code, of course. But I think somebody, you know, who you know, has the confidence to come in and, and, and leave their own footprint on this thing. And, and I think that's really important at the early phases. I think a lot of founders tend to be very, you know, because you start out having your hands in everything, you, you know, there's a sort of fallacy that, well, I built this thing, so, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of it, right? And, and you, know, you kind of have to realize as early as possible that, you know, my job as sort of a CEO of a startup is to my, my first job, first and foremost, is to build a team of people that are better than me at X, Y, and Z, and eventually get to a point where, you know, maybe I'm helping kind of direct traffic and helping unblock people. But ultimately, you know, there's not a single, I think, transformative type of company, particularly in this space, that's built by, you know, one or two people, right? It, it really takes a village to build, you know, any kind of a really complex software product, but especially, you know, something like this where, we're effectively asking our customers to trust us with a, with a really important part of their applications. And so making sure that the team behind it isn't just kind of a somebody who's, for lack of a better word, kind of a some, you know, somebody kind of clocking in and out and doing the work, but actually cares about the product in a deep sense. That's really important. Let's flip to scalability then. So was this built to scale efficiently from day one? I guess this would be this would be rebranding from Quilt or, or reincorporating as Quilt. Did you build it to scale efficiently from that point? Or are you finding this as you grow in any capacity? I think we, we made a lot of really good architecture decisions early on, in part because, again, I, I, I was learning as I go. And so, you know, in the very early days, and so I was sort of trying to do things right, so to speak. And perhaps if I were to do it all over again, I wouldn't have optimized for some of the things I was optimizing in the, in the very early days. But, you know, one of the reasons why I was really excited to kind of collaborate with Zane on this is, you know, you know, Chime is, I believe, the fifth largest bank in the U.S. by cardholders. I think they have more customers than than Citi. And so, you know, he had touched and built systems that, you know, were being rolled out to millions of customers. Right. And so that was a really big kind of a litmus test for me is, frankly, you know, kind of getting a sense of, of his reaction and using his expertise to see, you know, what of our core stuff needs to change and when. And so we've been incrementally, I would say, sort of addressing scalability issues, you know, 
we just migrated off of Heroku onto a serverless AWS database. So trying to kind of focus on kind of the worst case scenarios or the best case scenarios, depending on how you put it from a, from a scaling perspective. But in general, it's, it's, it's pretty core, I think, to the DNA of the company, you know, to make sure that any feature that we roll out, you know, can work, you know, just as well for, you know, 10 customers as, as a thousand customers, right? So I think it's really important to solve these problems early on because it's never going to be easier to do it later, right? When, when, when you're having, you know, production outages because, you know, you, you, you designed something, something wrong. So yeah, it, it's something we think about quite a bit. I think there's a lot of trade-offs too, right? Like if, you know, for particularly for companies that, you know, take on venture capital, you know, you, you just have this default dead sort of perspective, right? Where, you know, you know, you need to hit certain milestones, you know, for you to be able to kind of continue on your journey. And, and you know, sometimes those milestones may not be, sometimes you can sort of cut corners, right? To, to get to those milestones from a, from a kind of infrastructure perspective. And I think that that's a really important trade-off for, you know, that, that I view that as sort of my, my, one of my core jobs as well, right? Is to balance sort of the trade-off of, you know, building really, really bulletproof system, but also making sure that, you know, we're, we're not, it's not, it's not significantly slowing down our ability to, to, to build the type of features that our, that our customers want. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? The, the, the team that we've assembled. That's definitely the, the number one thing for me. Right? I think there's a lot of ambitions that you know I have as a startup founder regarding sort of the success of my company and, and the impact it, it can have on on our customers and, and their end users. But at the same time, I think it's, it's a huge responsibility to you know, have payroll to hit right and, and make sure that you know you're able to you know bring people in that are dedicating you know what are sort of prime career and earning years towards kind of an idea that you know you, you started with so, so i think being able to really build the kind of team that we've built at the stage that we're at i think is something that i'm i'm probably most proud of and then i would say on a personal level this has been a very fun and rewarding journey in a lot of ways but it has by no means been an, been an easy one and so i think the fact that you know my co-founder and I kind of stuck through it, through through challenges and through successes, and, and just stayed stayed on track. I think when you know perhaps and, and, and sometimes it would have been easier to kind of give up on it. I think that's been also really validating to be sort of in, in the position that we're in today, with a great team, you know, with a with a great product, with with the cash in the bank. It's it's a really nice feeling and kind of validation for just persevering through the kind of classic ups and downs of early stage startup life. Okay, well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think there was a, there was a big assumption that we made that, not to get too in the weeds of the product, right? But, but essentially, the core product and, and the core, I would say, secret sauce of Quilt is that we're a unified API for multiple different types of APIs and data providers. So by integrating into Quilt, you're ultimately integrating into you know, Plaid's data network, MX's data network, which are, you know, large and very successful aggregation companies in the space. And, and we're sort of normalizing that into a, a single standard data model. And because we're doing that kind of on a hosted basis, we're able to supplement that with data that we can access from other third parties. So, so typically companies would have to integrate with each of these providers sort of one at a time. Everybody has a, their own data model. Everybody has their own sort of data schema. And, you know, you end up kind of stitching together all this stuff in-house. And we've basically said, you know, we have a normalized data model and we have these integrations already pre-built. 
focus on the actual core user experience, don't focus on kind of boring data plumbing. And, and you know, I think that kind of continues to be the, the, the main reason why, why people are coming to us. But one of the things we never really considered is to use these type of services, you know, there, there is a front end component. For example, to use Plaid, you, know, you need to go through the Plaid link flow. That's a, it's an embeddable front end module that you need to configure, put it in front of your end user. The user goes through that flow and then kind of we take over from there and, and we do the rest. So one of the assumptions that we made was, okay, well, we're solving the back end problem and that's the really hard engineering problem. The front end, you know, that's that's easier. You know, we can deal with it later or our customers can figure that out. One of the learnings from uh, our last year in beta was that this is true to a degree, but ultimately people are coming to us not for the normalized data model. They're coming to us to solve integration issues, right? They want to make it easier to access this data. They want to accomplish a particular job. And the front end is a really important part of this user experience, right? You know, you, you need to configure, you know, multiple providers. You need to set them up a certain way. There are UX trade-offs and considerations that you need to think through. And, you know, unless you've spent a long time playing these type of services, you don't necessarily know the right decisions to make until your product is kind of out in front of customers and, and, and you might be running into some issues. We really didn't, didn't prioritize the front-end piece. And so that's something that we kind of realized, I would say, in the fall of this past year and spent the last few months building a what I what I think is a really powerful front-end experience. So now we're not just handling the back-end, we're also handling the front-end. So if customers want to handle the front-end fully themselves, they still can. So what we ended up doing is we effectively dog-fooded our own API and built the Quilt Connector. And so the Quilt Connector essentially handles all the logic and configuration that you would need to use, you know, 99% of the most common scenarios of, of these type of providers that we integrate and so now folks can essentially add all the power of the quote platform into their application with literally a single line of code that they can copy and paste into their application without losing the flexibility of, of sort of going custom if they want to so what does the future look like for quilt the product and for your team one of the main kind of ambitions that we have in the next year year and a half is to really start bringing this type of data into the mainstream for sort of the average tech savvy, but maybe not technical user. Um, you know, if you look at low code and no code platforms like Zapier and Airtable, Notion to some degree, right? You know, we're sort of kind of a, this really interesting development in, in, on the web where 10, 15 years ago, if you needed to build a website, you were building HTML templates, right? That's the only way to build a website. Um, and, you know, whether you're tech technical or not, and, you know, building HTML isn't that hard, you know, and then, you, you know, you started to see companies like Webflow, right, that came and said, you know what, like, building websites is actually, building good websites is actually really hard, and there's a way to do this without writing all the code. You know, here's a drag and drop builder, and all of a sudden, really anybody with kind of a creative eye for design or, or just sort of good visual eye, right, can build incredible websites. And you're starting to see this sort of leak into kind of the enterprise, right? There are like massive Fortune 500 companies that use you know, services like Webflow or, or in the e-commerce space services like Shopify, right? They're not building all this stuff from scratch. And, and you know, in effect, their engineers are now able to focus on like really core user experience problems rather than repetitive and repeatable work. Our big thesis is that, you know, the same thing is happening in the financial services space. 
The first domino to drop, I would say, has been payments. So if you're you know, familiar with sort of Stripe's low, low, like no-code products roadmap over the last, I would say, year or so, you know, many to most of the things that you could do with Stripe, right? And Stripe is sort of the original probably company that made payments not painful for engineers. You can do most of that stuff with, with no code now, right? They have these like payment links, they have, you know, really powerful webhooks. There's, you know, Stripe apps and Zapier, there's all these tools. And, you know, you can increasingly sort of take advantage of the power of the Stripe platform without speaking code. In the sort of financial services space, when it comes particularly to the financial kind of data space, we just don't have this yet. You still need engineers to integrate with most of the services. You know, most of the stuff takes longer than people anticipate. The integrations are hard. They can be brittle. The core problem with this is that you're kind of locking out massive sort of universe of, of current and potential builders from even attempting to solve the you know inordinate number of problems that Americans have, you know, managing their personal finances and 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 you know, working to sort of live more prosperous financial lives. And so, and so our, our big focus for this year is to take the kind of the, the tooling that we've built and make it just frankly easier to use for people who don't know how to code. So that involves, you know, a Zapier app that we just launched that's in beta. That involves sort of the connector, which again, you don't need to be technical to use. And, and eventually, you know, it's going to move into sort of embeddable UI components. So we're going to sort of start with like the, you know, copy this line of code to get the functionality. But I think you're getting to a point, you know, pretty soon where you'll be able to do a lot of the common financial data workflows, you know, frankly, with drag and drop and being able to, you know, let us handle the complexity, let us let our code kind of run the type of, you know, user experiences that you're designing without code yourself. I think that the tricky part here, of course, is making sure that these type of systems are not worse than the code based systems, right? And so being able to build on this, you know, we like to think of it as like a no code to all code spectrum. So it's not, it's not that we're, you know, we want to have a no code only product. We want to have a product that's built on code that different parts of it require less and less code so that we can reach a less technical, less technical builder over time. And, you know, if folks want to drop deeper into code, they always can. So that's, that's, that's sort of a big trade off for us as we think about becoming more no-code. I, I think no-code and low-code tend to be a little bit overused. I, I really do think most applications that use that term are really on, on a certain, in a certain place on the spectrum. And so we really want to have a product that uh, works kind of across that spectrum so that we can, you know, engineers love us, but also people who, who are like, well, what is code, uh, are also able to build really powerful experiences using the same platform. Last question, Ruben. So you're getting on a plane. And you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Main advice I would say is I think it's very exciting to be in tech. I think it's very exciting to be able to, you know, will products into existence. But I think it's also important just to remember that ultimately, you know, depending on what you're building, of course, but, you know, there will be human beings at the end of this just making sure that you never really lose empathy for the end customer, the end user of your of your product, I think is really important. I think the related piece of advice would be, you know, make sure you're taking care of yourself, make sure you're sleeping, make sure you're, you know, spending time with your family, make sure you're kind of being a full person, which can be sometimes hard to do when you're, you know, 
laser focused on getting a product off the ground. But I think like remaining a functional human, I think is really important so that you can build a product for humans. I probably wouldn't be very fun to sit next to on the plane if I'm kind of lecturing people on that, but that's, that's what comes to mind. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Well, Ruben, thank you for being on the show today and thank you for telling the creation story of Quilt. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.